The college admission process isn't easy for anyone. As top colleges become increasingly competitive, the demands placed on applicants aren't just the exorbitant tuition. Systemic racism in America has long permeated education, but efforts to diversify student bodies have often been met with backlash. How can we create a more equitable college admission system? I'm Edward Sturm. I'm Izzy Amoruso. And this is Duality. Every week, we bring you two stories and a conversation about them. This week on Duality, Fair Admission. The 1978 Affirmative Action Supreme Court decision and current legal battles over the treatment of Asian American applicants to Harvard have a clear intersection. What should we learn? Additionally, after our conversation today, we will again be highlighting resources for continued allyship in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. So, I want to start with some background on the the Baki Supreme Court case that I'm talking about. Uh, So, Alan Baki was a white man who had twice applied and been rejected to the medical school at UC Davis in the 1970s when he filed a suit against the university claiming that he had been discriminated against. Uh, And at the time, UC Davis had in place a quota system that reserved 16 of the 100 seats in the class to uh, qualified minority students in an effort to diversify the profession and redress a history of discrimination. Uh, Those 16 spots essentially operated like a separate admissions track. Baki's GPA and test scores were higher than any of the students that were admitted under the special program, Uh, so he argued that he was excluded on the basis of race. On a narrow 5-4 decision, the court ruled that the quota system was unconstitutional and ordered that Baki be admitted to UC Davis. Uh, They argued that any racial quota system violated the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Now, Justice Thurgood Marshall, who was the first black Supreme Court justice and an important civil rights advocate, offered a powerful dissent. For it must be remembered that during most of the past 200 years, the Constitution, as interpreted by this court, did not prohibit the most ingenious and pervasive forms of discrimination against the Negro. Now, When a state acts to remedy the effects of that legacy of discrimination, I cannot believe that this same Constitution stands as a barrier. So so he invoked the history of systematic racism in America to argue that programs designed to redress the oppression of black people couldn't possibly violate the Civil Rights Act that was intended to also do just that. There was no single ruling, though. Um, Justice Lewis Powell was the swing vote, and he sided with the liberals on the court on a different determination uh, that favored UC Davis. And this said that universities could use race as one of a plurality of factors when considering admission. Uh, And this is what created the constitutional basis for the practice of affirmative action. I mean, a hugely important case uh, overall that no doubt shaped college admissions, and particularly that part of the decision that uh, allows for the use of race in admissions. Um, Now, there's a a particular digression uh, within the oral arguments of the case uh, that I find really interesting. 
and a twin solicitor general, Wade McCree, is presenting. And he uh, was arguing for the U.S. government, um, not because they were a party to the suit, but because there are other federal programs, there were at the time and, and still are now, obviously, uh, that are racially conscious, that are, that are not completely blind uh, to race. And that, you, you know, particularly assist uh, ethnic minorities and um, black and Hispanic folks, particularly. Uh, so, so the implication uh, is it, at the time is that if UC Davis loses outright, uh, those programs could be uh, considered unconstitutional, that there would be a precedent for that. And so Wade McCree makes the comment that oppression in this country is not only limited to the black community, and he points to the Asian Exclusion Acts uh, particularly. Uh, he, he's pushed a little bit on the inclusion of Asian American students, um, and you know there's some confusion within the record, but it's agreed that there are more Asian doctors than are proportionate to their population, which is not true of black, Hispanic, or Native American doctors, which were the other um, minorities that were, were discussed in the case. Uh, so their point, uh, the, the justices asking these questions, is that if Asians are overrepresented, in fact, as doctors, then there doesn't exist the same compelling interest to single them out for selection to the program. Uh, his first response, Wade McCree's uh, first response, is that the Asian American community isn't monolithic. You know, that there are a myriad of ethnic groups that make up that, that categorical set of Americans, and not all of those experiences are the same. You know, you know, if you were able to to take it down, which which you know the record and the statistics they had did not to um, to Korean Americans versus Japanese Americans, that uh, those trends might show something differently. Uh, his second answer is that the record is unclear, but regardless, the intention of the U.S. government in, in their testimony is to protect the ability to have remedial programs that are racially conscious. Uh, so this exchange didn't really affect the ultimate decision in the case. And in fact, Asian uh, American applicants were almost exclusively accepted as part of the 84 seats and, and very rarely uh, given that uh, accepted as part of the the special program for minorities at UC Davis. Uh, but it, it did get me thinking, I mean, for one, how remarkable it is that despite a clear history of discrimination against Asian Americans, their success is what it is in uh, the medical field and in the U.S. as a whole. And secondly, uh, it got me thinking as to what parallels might exist between the Baki case and then the current debate regarding Asian American applicants uh, to Harvard. The two stories we have today are more explicitly interconnected than any of the other stories we've examined on our podcast thus far. In 2014, a group called Students for Fair Admissions sued Harvard University, saying that their admissions process was discriminatory against Asian American applicants. The group is led by Edward Bloom, a conservative legal strategist known for challenging laws involving race. Their aim was to overturn the ruling of the Bakke case. They contended that Harvard unfairly favored Black and Hispanic applicants, which came at the expense of other minority groups, and that admissions officers were operating with clear racial bias. The evidence offered for this claim was that the personal ratings, which are subjective evaluations of an applicant's personal qualities of Asian American applicants, tended to be lower on average than those of white applicants— the group believed this was a tool used by the institution to give preference to certain applicants over others. In October of 2019, U.S. District Judge Allison D. Burroughs ruled in favor of Harvard. She stated, 
The court therefore concludes that the data demonstrates a statistically significant and negative relationship between Asian American identity and the personal dating assigned by Harvard admissions officers, holding constant any reasonable set of observable characteristics, meaning that the gap in evaluation scores between Asian Americans and white applicants was meaningful and not the result of chance, but she went on to say that the plaintiffs were unable to prove that the personal ratings resulted from any form of racial bias. The trial made it clear that it is more difficult for Asian American applicants to gain admission to Harvard. There have been multiple studies, two notable ones conducted in 2009 and 2015, that concluded that Asian American applicants, on average, had to score much higher than other groups on standardized testing and receive higher grades to be considered for acceptance. In February of 2020, Students for Fair Admissions appealed the decision, and it will soon be taken to the appeals court. This case will likely appear in front of the current conservative majority on the Supreme Court, and it runs the risk of potentially outlawing affirmative action in its entirety. That is a dangerous prospect. You know, I, I find interesting the name of the group, uh, Students for Fair Admission, because they're right that, that a system that disproportionately lowers the personality scores of Asian applicants is not fair. But neither is an admission process that doesn't take into account the history of systemic racism and discrimination in the United States, and that's effect particularly on Black and Hispanic students. You know, when I critique this case, I feel like, in a way, I'm, I'm kind of self-hating because I'm an Asian-American woman, but the way these students are handling the case seems very individualistic. The effect the ruling of the case could have is more detrimental on a societal level than them not getting into Harvard is. That, that, that's a really good point. And I understand the frustration of these students. You know, in the Baki case, they discussed some elements of that uh, systematic oppression against Asian-Americans. But even in light of that, the modern situation is not one that yields a lower number of qualified Asian applicants. In fact, there are more qualified applicants in that community than, than our white students. A part of that is certain cultural aspects of immigrant and Asian American communities. My mom, who is a Japanese and Chinese second generation immigrant, attended Harvard in part due to the expectation of my grandparents. She grew up in a very low income area of Baltimore and she faced a lot of pressure to succeed and, and really to es escape her circumstances. She's told me before how she thinks that there were other schools that she was accepted to that she would have been much happier attending than Harvard, but there was a cultural expectation that she would go to the best school she was accepted to. And there's this culture of personal sacrifice to highly achieve by, by any means necessary. And, and that's where the idea of a tiger mom comes from. Yeah. Y you know, we... We want the most qualified applicants to get in to, to schools. We want a, a meritocracy. But we do have to acknowledge that societal injustice has created a system that doesn't allow us to have, you, you know, blind auditions. Like, this isn't the voice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love the voice, but I find it interesting that the idea of a meritocracy in the U.S. has changed from its original intention. The word's origin came from a book called The Rise of the Meritocracy in 1958, and it was a satire that described a futuristic Britain in which society operated only around intelligence and merit, ignoring social class. And the society created has two disparate classes, an elite merited group and a disenfranchised lower class. 
the book aimed to dislodge the idea of a purely meritocratic system because it can only perpetuate inequality. And there's a lot of truth to that perspective. We, we like to think that the college admissions process is rooted exclusively in the merit of its applicants, but this so often ignores the advantage afforded to students with more resources. A meritocracy today, in light of our country's history of prejudice, racism, and, and socioeconomic inequality, is in no way fair. Hmm. That, that, that history is really interesting, uh, particularly the word meritocracy. Education absolutely factors heavily into inequality because it's so closely related to a person's socioeconomic future, to, to the outcome. Um, but, but the root of Harvard's dilemma, or, or of UC Davis's dilemma back in the 70s, and, and of every university that has a racially conscious admissions department, is that there is a disparate number of qualified applicants coming from various racial groups. I mean, that, that takes it back to the, the issue that Asian Americans are facing applying to Harvard today. Uh, the root of the problem is systemic inequality. And to that end, affirmative action is valuable, but it's too late in the cycle. It's not itself a solution. Right. It's, it's more effective to address the catalyst for the issue rather than its effects. Having a diverse freshman class is incredibly important, but the racial considerations to get there is a band-aid, not an actual solution to the underlying issue. Yeah. I was reading an article recently uh, from, from The Economist that I think really applies here, and it talks about one real effective way to help low-income and minority students is is not to just focus on the Ivy League schools at, at the highest level, but to provide functional help and resources when it comes to getting associate's degrees at community colleges. They, they can really transform their socioeconomic prospects. It looks at like the ASAP program in New York City and the One Million Degrees program in Chicago, which provides money for, for textbooks, for gas or public transport to get them to class, to, for tutors and, and resources to uh, help them on that front. And it's not any of these one single things that is uh, drastically improving the graduation rates of these students, which both of these programs are doing so effectively. Uh, but it's, it's the amalgamation of all of these things together. It's, it's phrased as uh, more effective than affirmative action in breaking the cycle of, of poverty. There's a part I want to read from it because uh, I think it, it's really relevant. Uh, to many, the whole question of equity in American universities can be reduced simply to the racial makeup of the Ivy League institutions. Besides ignoring the incomes of students at those colleges who tend to be rich whatever ra their race and color, this also assigns central importance to the controversial affirmative action policies of highly selective universities universities. Although the share of black students attending Harvard is symbolically important, the situation of those happy few is divorced from the continued social immobility among successive cohorts of black students. Endless debate about affirmative action, which could wind up before the Supreme Court yet again, is a diversion from a less controversial method that works. Yeah, that article brings up a disparity between the socioeconomic situations of the students who are being admitted to higher ed institutions who are black or Hispanic or, or part of those marginalized racial groups and other students who may also be a part of those racial groups but are in a lower socioeconomic strata and don't have the same resources. 
and there are, there are so many organizations that aim to close achievement gaps in post-secondary education, boost graduation rates, and promote equitable opportunity for all students, like Complete College America, College Possible, and, and the National College Attainment Network. Also, historical discrimination has led to inequity in elementary and secondary education as well, and that in itself is so important. If someone doesn't have a strong educational basis because of where they live or the property taxes coming out of their neighborhoods, we can't have conversations around meritocracy or equal opportunity the way we would like to because their educational foundation isn't as strong as other students. It brings up the comparison of equality versus equity. Treating people equally does not lead to equity. Instead, we need to accommodate people's individual circumstances and invest in those underinvested neighborhoods. Equal treatment still leaves certain groups at a societal disadvantage. Yeah, that, that's a great point. So Harvard's work to make their freshman class look like the entire nation to be diverse is valuable. And it's also difficult because of longstanding inequity, like you were talking about. But here's the thing. I don't feel bad for Harvard in this situation. Harvard's endowment is $40 billion. That's outrageous. If you donate to Harvard, I mean, you're, you're, you're essentially contributing to one of the largest trust funds in the world that, that happens to run a small college. Like, usually we tell stories with people, but sometimes numbers themselves tell a story. So here are some numbers. <laughs> if you take the combined endowment of all the Ivy League schools, the number is around $139 billion. For reference, federal education spending every year is around $69 billion. I mean, compare the roughly 50 million students who go to public schools at any time, given uh, to the 140,000 students who go to the Ivy League schools. And it's not just private colleges. The University of Texas system has the third largest endowment of any educational institution, only behind Harvard and Yale. So here's my answer. Don't donate to Harvard. Don't donate to the University of Texas. Don't donate to any major university. Because even if they do the work to make their student body diverse, they aren't the ones who are in the position to disrupt cycles of intergenerational poverty and perpetual inequity. And this is the kind of change that we're talking about wholesale in the United States across America. These schools are going to be just fine. They have plenty of endowment money. Secondly, uh, for those schools who feel that they have a responsibility to contribute to the public good, which, you know, given the tax structure and financial aid taken advantage of by private colleges should be every single university, public or private, the answer for them is direct that money someplace else. You know, Malcolm Gladwell has an interesting uh, piece on his Revisionist History podcast where he, he sort of flirts with the idea of what is the the largest gift that a... Um, a, a university president would say no to. And I think that we have already surpassed that point. The fact that Harvard has an endowment of $40 billion, and yet we have underfunded public education, elementary and secondary education, and we can't seem to make programs like the ASAP program or the One Million Degrees program that are so effective in actually lifting people out of poverty and lifting people out of intergenerational oppression as the product of systemic racism. The fact that we don't have money for that, and yet the endowments are at the crazy number that they are, means that we've already surpassed that point. Sure, it might be a radical idea. Sure, it might not happen. But these colleges could make 
drastically more social change by redirecting those funds elsewhere. Exactly. Privatized institutions have, have no obligation financially to use their funds for the public good, but that in no way means that they shouldn't. It makes so much more sense if these universities and colleges aren't going to do that to give to organizations that aim to promote accessibility and break down those barriers for disadvantaged students. If we want to solve the issue of diversity versus merit in higher education, we need to make sure that everyone has the means to pursue higher education, which will allow schools to be more pragmatic and quantitative in their decision-making, rather than potentially falsifying subjective ratings to ensure that Harvard's class looks how Harvard wants it to look. If underinvested areas were able to provide better education at those fundamental secondary levels, we would see more equal treatment of applicants on a collegiate level, and we would see a more diverse representation of minority students across higher ed in general. That doesn't mean that these elite institutions will become less competitive for Asian American applicants or anyone else, but the system of admissions will be fairer for everyone. In an effort to continue the conversation about the Black Lives Matter movement, we are again highlighting resources for allyship. In light of our discussion this week, I wanted to highlight the One Million Degrees program in Chicago. You can donate and find out more about this program at onemilliondegrees.org. A documentary that I found very informative and highly recommend watching is Ava DuVernay's 13th. It brings to light the intersection of race, class, and mass incarceration in the United States. It was named after the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery across the nation, except as a punishment for crime. If you're interested in watching it, the documentary is available on Netflix. After watching, I found the Equal Justice Initiative, which is a non-for-profit dedicated to ending mass incarceration and excessive punishment in the U.S., challenging racial and socioeconomic injustice, and securing basic human rights for disadvantaged Americans. They provide legal representation to people who were illegally convicted and work with communities that have been marginalized by poverty. You can donate to the organization at their website, eji.org. We encourage you to continue advocating for justice and considering ways you can support the Black Lives Matter movement. Next week on Duality, we discuss the American Colossus. Emma Lazarus's poem, inscribed on the Statue of Liberty, has become an anthem surrounding immigration, but it has so much more to say about what it means to be an American. Thanks for listening. 